Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood, coming at you again with story time. On Memorial Day, at least that's the when I'm recording this particular portion of this podcast. Um, getting ready to take my boys to Avengers Endgame in a little bit, but I figured I'd take a minute to be start this weekly podcast. <laughs> Even though it used to be out have is Monday, it used to be out have it out on Monday, but uh, well, you know we've apparently officially shifted to Thursdays. So <laughs> what are you gonna do? Um, yeah, so it's been a pretty good week around the Kingswood abode. Uh, let's see, last week, uh, yeah, I think I told you, I got the last few audiobooks, uh, short stories, audiobook sized and I, I realized that I had all ten stories that were in my short story ten pack turned in audiobooks so said shoot self i should just make short story 10 pack an audiobook so i did and it's up along with all the other various audiobooks that i put up you can get them um, pretty much anywhere audiobooks are sold except for audible audible takes longer to review and process books into their system than the other places so you go by uh, kobo google play apple all these you can find all these various titles there audible is going to take a another couple weeks but that's okay um what else happened this last week well uh, it was it was the sixth week of the great challenge with uh my short story a week challenge that i'm doing with dean busy smith and another week of success got the story into him last night and so that's six weeks down six stories written on to 52 shouldn't be too hard right uh let's see and the other thing i just been revising covers uh, getting some of the old stories that have been sitting out there for a while, just updating the covers, not necessarily cover art, but the layout and formatting and stuff to uh, make it more in keeping with the the branding style that I'm going with now. For a while there, I just kind of was throwing stuff up. Not just throwing stuff up, but I was doing my best to make them look right, but uh, I didn't have a real true branding purpose. I'm getting that refined a little bit better now. And you'll see as you look at compare before and after shots of a couple of covers there. Um, yeah. I think it looks better, more professional, and they all kind of seamlessly work together so that you say, yeah, yeah, that's a Kingswood book. Along those same lines, I decided I wanted to redo the cover of The Pericles Conspiracy, the book I'm reading right now, uh, because same thing, branding. Uh, the co cover that Trevor Smith did for me Back in late 2014, early 2015, it was great. No complaints about it, except that it doesn't match the branding scheme that I'm going with. So I was going to have Brandon Swan, the guy who does my Grim of Rail covers, uh, take a pass at redoing Passing in the Night and uh, the Pericles Conspiracy, but he's busy working a couple other covers for me at the moment. So on a couple of uh, Glimmer of Air short stories that you guys haven't seen yet, but are, in fact, out there and will be in the world here before too much longer uh but anyway the 
he's busy with those two things. So I decided to take a crack at it myself. I made the first cover of Pericles Conspiracy myself way back in the day. And for a neophyte guys in 2013 who really didn't know too much what he was doing, I think I did a pretty decent job of it. Uh, but it said the wrong said the wrong message about what the story was. A spaceship on the cover and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and uh, it says, hey, look at this. This takes place out in space. Well, no, most of the story takes place on Earth. They get to space near the end, as you'll see as we go through it. But it uh, mostly is on Earth doing conspiracy spy heist kind of what's going on stuff uh so trevor revised it to make it more look action more actiony which is a lot of, a lot of action in it and show that no it's not really on the spaceship but again branding so i went and revised said i'd take another crack at it myself found a few images on deposit photos that i thought would work well um and then i just took the art that Trevor originally did for Passing the Night and just reformatted the Passing the Night cover to look more in keeping with the branding since that worked okay since I got the art from that without text so it was easy to do. Um, Trevor, the art, the cover for Pericles, Trevor sent me with all the text and everything laid out and this would be hard to <laughs> revise that around. But I found those two images and put did some magic with the GNU image manipulator program, GIMP, which uh, is like Photoshop, except it's freeware, so it's nice. And uh, a couple hours playing around, I got uh, an image that I think works pretty well. So I put made the new cover, which you can see as I pop up right here. Um, I like it because it's got Joe, the main character, front and center, and it still says sci-fi. He's got the planetscape and the sun rising, um, but it doesn't say... It doesn't say, ooh, out in a spaceship all the time. And Joe's got the very determined look on her face. And, and I don't know, so to me it says sci-fi. It says his main character says... Yeah. So I'm going to put that new cover out there, see how the marketplace likes it. And you guys tell me what you think, too. Um, we'll go from there. Uh, general rule of thumb is you should revisit covers every few years anyway, so it was about the time to do it. Um, so, yeah, that's what's been going on. I'm going to sign off now and uh, get my boys over to uh, go to Endgame. When I come back, we'll finish recording the outro of this and the chapters that we're going to do. And we'll get this out to you, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. The Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. Read by me. You know I'm sorry for that. Chapter 15. Holding Pattern. For a moment, Joe stood there in shock and growing panic. Alone and helpless in the dark, she began to imagine all manner of horrors stalking her. Berating herself for being foolish and trying to focus her thoughts on the remembered layout and dimensions of her cell helped a little, but not much. Unbidden, her fear kept welling up within her, joining with the guilt that weighed on her mind already and threatening to reduce her to a weeping, huddling caricature of herself. In the end, though, her bladder accomplished what willpower failed to, as immediate physical need drove her psychological turmoil down to a manageable level, and at least for the short term. It took several moments to stumble and feel her way first to the cot, then to the wall, and then finally around to the toilet. That taken care of, Joe stumbled over to the cot and sat down. She tried not to cringe at the remembered grime on the blankets, but in the darkness did it really matter if they were dirty? 
Then all at once, exhaustion from a very long night, combined with the stress of everything she had learned and experienced that evening, crashed down upon her. Sleep took her before she could think another thought. Light, bright against her eyelids, caused Joe to wake. Groggy and disoriented, she couldn't register what was going on for a moment. Bright, blinding light streamed through a rectangular shape. A door? People, their features indiscernible as they were silhouetted in the light, stepped into the room and, bending over, grasped her by the forearms. She found herself lifted onto her feet. The figures all but dragged her suspended in the air between them as they let her from her cell. They turned left outside and began walking down a long, monotonous corridor. Where the hell was she? In her half-dreaming state, Joe couldn't figure it out for the longest time. But finally, she began to gather her wits about her and regain her footing. She glanced right and left as she moved with the two guards, but she might as well have stared at the floor. The passing walls were the same drab color and bare of decoration. Every few paces, they passed another pair of doors. She stopped noting the numbers on them when they passed 75. How many souls were incarcerated here in cells devoid of even the hint of light? She shuddered to think about it. After several minutes, she and her guards reached the end of the corridor and turned right. Before long, they came to a plain wooden door that had a picture of the blindfolded Lady Justice painted on it. Joe tried not to ponder the irony of that picture, given the nature of her accommodations, as the two men pulled her through and into the room beyond. It was a courtroom. A man in a bailiff's uniform nodded familiarly to the two fellows who served as Joe's escorts and handed a tablet to the man on her left. The man scanned the text on the screen and nodded, then touched his thumb onto the bottom of the screen. The tablet beeped. Apparently satisfied, the bailiff made a gesture for Joe to follow him. She complied, noting that the two guards took seats next to the door. She had come in through a side entrance near the jury box, which Joe noted was empty. The observation galley behind the council's bench was also empty, except for a small gray-haired woman sitting in the back row. Joe didn't linger on her for long. Instead, her gaze was drawn to a stately-looking man in black judge's robes who was seated opposite the council's. He had the stern look of a fellow who sees miscreants all day and has allowed that experience to tarnish his view of all mankind. Or he just had a good game face. Prisoner Ishikawa, the bailiff said quickly as he led Joe around to the defendant's bench. Your case is next on the docket. Please wait here until you are called. He gestured to the two rows. He gestured to a seat two rows behind the defendant's bench. Joe sat down without bothering to reply. Another prisoner was standing before the judge. Tall but pudgy, the man had an unruly mop of red-gold hair and was wearing a plain yellow jumpsuit. Beside him was a young man in an obviously cheap imitation of a quality business suit. The youngster couldn't have been older than 25. Joe hoped for the defendant's sake that was a younger relative who'd come in to lend moral support and not his attorney. Trial is set for January 24th at 10 o'clock, said the judge, and he wrapped his gavel down on the plate on top of his desk. The defendant turned to the younger man next to him and shrugged. Then the two of them shook hands and the defendant turned to walk past Joe toward the main entrance doorway. Joe watched him stroll out and felt a pang of jealousy. Josephine? The sound of her name turned Joe's attention away from the departing man and back toward the speaker. It was the youngster. He smiled at her. At least he had a nice smile and gorgeous deep green eyes and extended his hand. I'm Wesley Thompson. I'm the public defender. This is the preliminary hearing. Lots of procedures to follow, T's to cross, and I's to dot. It can get pretty thick with legalese, so just relax and let me do the talking, okay? Before Joe could respond, a bailiff near the judge's raised lectern spoke loudly. 
Docket number 24483, United Earth Coalition versus Josephine Yukio Ishikawa. Thompson gestured for Joe to move forward, and she obliged. Following him to the defendant's bench, she took a moment to size up the prosecutor. Tall and willowy, with legs that never quit, an overly large bust that strained against a business suit that was perhaps a size too small for her to be wearing in public, and striking features framed by flowing golden locks right out of a fairy tale, Joe hated her on sight. Then she spoke, and her nasal voice made Joe smirk slightly. Miss Stunner was not so perfect after all, was she? It was a petty thought, Joe knew, but she couldn't help but taking satisfaction in it. It took a moment for the prosecutor's words to settle in. What did she just say? Joe asked quietly, disbelief making her breathless. Thompson glanced sideways at her and shook her head, a look of annoyance flashing across his face for a heartbeat. Let me do the talking, he said. How does the defense plead? asked the judge as he turned the severe stare on Joe and her attorney. Defense pleads guilty, Your Honor, Thompson said to Joe's amazed disbelief. The hell I do, Joe burst out. She didn't even read the charges. The loud clack of the judge's gavel striking its plate drew her gaze back to him. The defendant will remain silent, he said, an unspoken threat in his tone and in his stare. Your Honor, I enough. Bailiff, remove the prisoner. I told you, Thompson said softly with a rueful shake of his head. Rough hands grabbed her from behind. Joe looked over her shoulder to see the first bailiff. She struggled against his grip, but his fingers were like iron as they grasped her arms, and she found herself being dragged away. This is a travesty, she yelled. I demand... She reached the door, and her other two earlier guards moved forward. One grabbed her on either side of her jaw, and she felt her mouth being forced open. Then he forced a rag into her mouth, and his compatriot wrapped a cloth around her head to keep the gag in place. Gag she did, as the thug tied the cloth in place a little too tightly, and the rag in her mouth tickled the back of her throat. Joe doubled over involuntarily as her stomach heaved, and she tasted bile along with a tangy metallic flavor from the fabric in her mouth. Her head began to swim. Joe saw Thompson shaking his head, a regretful, almost pitying expression on his face, as the door swung shut behind her. Somewhere in her rapidly fading consciousness, she realized the rag was probably drugged. Then she faded out completely. Joe awoke some time later, though it took a while for her to realize she really was awake in the darkness of her cell. Finally, the smell of food convinced her that she was not just dreaming. She struggled to a seated position, but fell to her knees the moment she tried to stand. Whatever drug that had been on that rag was a strong one. That would have been fine, but she was connected with something made of metal as she fell. She heard a ringing clang as whatever it had been flipped up and then clattered back onto the ground. Groping hands soon discovered what had happened. She had upended the plate of food as she fell. Joe gritted her teeth and resigned herself to not eating after that, but rumbling from her abdomen and a feeling like her stomach was an empty hole in her belly eventually compelled her to eat the meal off the floor. Whatever small satisfaction having a less empty stomach brought was overwhelmed by a feeling of shame that welled up within her as she sat back up on the cot. Had she been reduced to behaving like an animal so quickly? She fell asleep again a short while later, the sounds of her own weeping acted as a twisted lullaby. Chapter 16 Visitation Most of a day passed before the two thugs returned and led her out of the cell again, though the day was marked only by the changing time display on Joe's wrist chronometer and the periodic deliveries of food through a slot at the bottom of her cell door. Eating in the darkness was difficult and messy, but based on the flavor of the food, Joe suspected maybe she was just as happy she couldn't see it. She spent most of her time on the cot, trying unsuccessfully to not think about her situation. 
Her mind kept whirling back through the events of the last several days, visiting every conversation, every decision she made that led her here. And she found she would make the same decisions again, even the decision to go with Malcolm in the park. A big part of herself wanted to lash out at him, and at her own stupidity for going with him, but that part of her mind was silenced by the memory of what Malcolm and Becky showed her in their headquarters. And then, after the evening meal, by her memories of her encounter with the alien beings aboard Pericles. The exhilaration of discovery, the terror when it looked like the encounter was going to collapse into violence, the feeling of crushing responsibility when the alien leader's request for their eggs became clear, and the awed respect at the way the adult aliens met their fate. The crushing burden of responsibility. It was hers. She had accepted the aliens aboard her ship, allowed them access. She had allowed them to place their offspring into humanity's hands. Into her hands. She did the best she could under the circumstances. Pericles only had enough fuel for deceleration burn on approach to Saul and to maneuver within the solar system and she had a little over 5,000 passengers under her care, to say nothing of the monetary value of the cargo and her holds. Joe could not have changed course to the alien system then and there under any circumstances, not without sacrificing the lives of everyone on the ship. So she had trusted that the authorities would do the right thing once she returned to Earth. Apparently not. It was the only choice she had, but that did not change the fact that she carried some measure of responsibility for what had happened to those eggs. And she was the one who said yes. The feeling of revulsion she experienced when she first saw Malcolm's video returned, more pronounced than before because it was tinged in guilt. She fell asleep amidst those feelings and only awoke when the cell door swung open and the thugs entered. When they took her this time, they turned left when they reached the end of the corridor. The corridor turned twice and ended in a set of double doors that led into a long, narrow room. The room was split in two down the middle by a row of cubicles that was bisected by a wall of transparent plastic glass. Joe had seen enough crime shows on the television to put two and two together. It was a visitor's gallery. But it was empty except for her and her guards. They led her halfway down the room and deposited her into a chair in one of the cubicles. Then they left. But they didn't go far, only about four meters before they stopped, their backs against the wall and their faces locked into stern, expressionless facades. Joe sat in silence for a long several minutes. Finally, a door on the other side of the plastic glass wall opened, and Harold walked into the room. He didn't look happy. In spite of herself, Joe felt a rush of nervousness as he sat down across from her. Harold tapped the table in front of himself, and a dialogue window popped up on the plastic glass between them. You look like hell, Joe, he said. His voice sounded a bit hollow, almost metallic, as it came through the window. Joe shrugged. Harry, I... Save it. What the hell were you thinking? He shook his head in disbelief. What did that guy do to you that you decided to whack him? A chill went down Joe's spine. Who? Harold raised a hand to silence her. I saw the video, okay? Just a few hours earlier, that would have made Joe relieved, but... Harry thought she had killed someone? Who? What video had he seen? I'm sure you had a reason for it, Harold continued, but you really put us in a bind here. Listen to me, Harry. I didn't kill anyone. It's a setup. Yeah? By who? Joe leaned forward and spoke in a softer tone. The NSA. They... Harold snorted. I told you not to go with all conspiracy theory on me. Why would they, or anyone else for that matter, want to set you up? He shook his head again. You'll have to come up with a better defense than that. Joe sat in shocked silence for a moment. Then, with a sinking feeling, she shrugged and leaned back in her chair. That's all I've got. Harold scowled at her response. Well, you'll have some help. I've got our legal team spinning up. 
I'll probably catch hell from the board for it, but you're the one of the best we'd have, and I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. Harold stood up and put on a grin that Joe presumed was supposed to be warm and comforting. It only made him look like a hooligan. Still, the knowledge that Sue wasn't completely alone helped. A little. Don't worry, we'll get that public defender replaced by someone who knows what he's doing. I'm sure we'll have a favorable decision faster than you can say Gliza. With that, Harold turned around and strode out of the room. It was days before Joe got her new lawyer. By then, she had almost become accustomed to the conditions in the holding cell. There is something that happens to a person as a routine sets in. The person gets used to it, comes to rely on it, to be comforted by it. Joe had experienced that several times in the past with new hires on the ship. First, they were awkward, uncomfortable with the conditions on board, but after a while they grew used to them. Most grew to like it. A few to love it. But though she had seen the adaption before in others, and experienced it herself many times before, she never would have thought she could get used to conditions like she found herself in now. All the same, she found herself counting the minutes between each feeding, relishing the small amount of light that came in as much as the food. It became the highlight of her daily routine, almost a joy. The rational side of her found that extremely troubling. It meant she was slowly becoming institutionalized. She began to wonder if they left her in this state for long enough, would she just confess to whatever they said to avoid losing the comfort of her routine? She scoffed at the thought, but could not rule it out completely. So it was with a mixture of relief and fear that she encountered a disruption to that routine some days later. First, the guards brought her into a small room, empty except for a shower nozzle. They told her to strip down, tossed her a bar of soap, and then watched as she bathed. She could have refused, maybe she should have, but she stank even to herself, and she felt grimy and crusty all over. So she endured their stares and the lukewarm water of the shower, and managed to find some enjoyment in washing off the accumulated dirt of a week or more. Her clothing was gone when she finished, replaced by the orange prisoner jumpsuit she was used to seeing in the televid. That had taken long enough. The guards did not rush her, but Joe wasted no time getting dried and dressed. Without the small distraction of the shower, she felt their eyes on her acutely. Then they let her out, but instead of turning down the long corridor of cells to her home, or what passed for it, they led her to a small room that did not look all that different from the interrogation room, except that it was not an agent waiting for her, but a gray-haired man who looked to be in his late nineties. He was dressed in a dark gray business suit with a blue and white striped tie. He stood when the guards let her in and nodded in greeting. The guard on her left fished a small tablet from his pocket and gave it to the man. He scanned it and nodded again, then pressed his thumb against the screen before handing it back. With that, the guard stepped out of the room and the door slid shut. There was a brief pause while Joe and the man looked at each other. He had sharp, gray-blue eyes that twinkled with intelligence. His face was lined as any middle-aged man's face would be, but he had more smile lines than most. He looked vaguely familiar. Captain Ishikawa, I'm Jerome Middleton. I work at the firm of Ernst, Middleton, and Young. McAllister Transport hired me to handle your case. Middleton extended his hand and Joe shook it. His grip was firm, confident, and unyielding, as Joe would expect. At the mention of his firm, she remembered where she had seen him before. He and his partners had handled the defense of a high-profile celebrity who had been accused of murdering his wife and a lover a year or so ago. As Joe recalled, the defendant had gotten off. Suddenly, her position did not seem quite so helpless. Glad to meet you, Mr. Milton. Please call me Jerome. He gestured toward one of the chairs and she took a seat. He did the same across the table from her. 
Your case, Jerome said, is a tricky one. The law governing, couldn't you start by telling me what I've been accused of? Jerome blinked, then nodded. Forgive me. I forgot you have limited experience with the current legal regime. The charges in cases such as yours that touch upon matters of planetary security cannot be read in open courts for security reasons. He leaned over and picked up his briefcase, which lay on the ground next to his chair, and sat it on the table to the side. Snapping it open, he pulled out a ream of, of all things, paper documents. Joe's eyes widened in surprise. Jerome noticed and smiled again. There were also no electronic records kept. It would not do to have sensitive material leaked inadvertently. He shuffled through the documents for a moment, then pulled a single page out. Now then, you are charged with conspiracy to commit treason, conspiracy to reveal sensitive material, and the second-degree murder of one Lars Hamilton. Joe blinked in surprise. Lars? They're saying I killed Lars? She leaned back in her chair. In spite of the dire situation she was in, she found herself laughing. What possible reason could I have to do that? I've met him once. Jerome shrugged. In these sorts of cases, it's not necessary to show motive. They have you on tape interacting with and then shooting him. What? How is that possible? The terrorist slayer. They are not terrorists. Jerome raised an eyebrow at her, then shrugged again. Their lair had multiple security cameras. No less than three show you entering and leaving in company with a known fugitive, then returning a short while later as Mr. Hamilton was leaving and gunning him down in the street outside. Joe could not believe what she was hearing. How does that make any sense at all? The NSA took me into custody as soon as I got home. The timetable does not work out at all, never mind the fact that I was not there to be recorded in the first place. She leaned forward and tapped the table with an index finger. You need to change my plea. That idiot of a public defender did not even consult with me. She trailed off as Jerome shook his head. I'm sorry, but that is not possible. In these sorts of cases, pleas, once entered, are firm. Jill looked at him, stunned. So I'm screwed. Not necessarily. Your case is now moving to sentencing. If we play our cards right, we may be able to get the judge to be lenient. What does lenient mean? That depends entirely upon you. He pulled another sheet of paper out of the stack and perused it for a moment. The prosecutor is willing to accept a minimum sentence in recognition of your status in the Starfarer community if you assist in the remainder of the investigation and prosecution. What is a minimal sentence? Jerome shrugged. Could be anything from five years with some probation to time served. It all depends on how valuable your assistant is to the prosecutor. Time served? She should be so lucky, but... What else is there to do? The NSA already raided their headquarters. Jerome shook his head, his expression sad. Apparently the terror... He stopped and corrected himself. The suspects were ready for the raid on their lair. All but a handful managed to escape, though agents confiscated all their equipment and data files. The prosecutor believes you may be able to assist in capturing the remaining fugitives. Or, barring that, there are other cells in existence besides this one. You could assist in taking them down. Joe snorted. I don't see how. Malcolm came to me, not the other way around. I doubt he would come to me again after all that's happened. Nevertheless, the offer is on the table. I suggest you take it. The alternative... He spread his hands. Well, let's just say the prison system is very unpleasant these days. Joe swallowed, then nodded. Whatever it took to get the hell out of there. So for this ending part here, I'm recording it in Philadelphia from my hotel room. <laughs> yes, I flew back to Philadelphia again for business. Again. Seems to be a common refrain here for me, and that's that's okay, though. Traveling's fun. Anyway, so that's the reason why you don't hear kids in the background, because <laughs> I'm in a quiet hotel room as opposed to in a place where kids were playing outdoors all over the place, and I didn't feel like uh, filtering out the noise from them. Uh, uh, 
pretty much going forward, I think I'm only going to really, really, really pay attention to the actual chapter portion of the books that I'm reading. Um, the intros and outros and me commenting, I'm not going to bother editing and noise reducing too much because eh, it's more real this way. And <laughs> this part's not going to go in the audiobook. So, anyway. So, okay, so... Joe's got a lawyer at least, so that's good. But man, uh, jail sucks. At least when you're held by the NSA in the far future. Remember, this is same initials, same acronym, but but not necessarily the same agency as we know the NSA to be. Clearly, this NSA is a more system-wide security kind of thing, whereas the NSA we know it, nowadays is signals intelligence and... Uh, mass surveillance of population and chicanery and you know things like that so um the one probably grew out of the other i hadn't really thought through exactly what the nsa is in this uh, future setting except that it's deals with planetary security and it's the big bugaboo how exactly came to be i haven't really thought that through probably grew out of the nsa we know and then morphed and over the centuries or not, I'll let you guys come up with your theories because I don't have one. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that sucks. Sucks to be locked up, but hey, it looks like at least she's got legal counsel and is going to be able to strike a deal, um, which is good. We'll see that where that goes in the next episode as we move on to the next chapters. Of course, as you know, if you can't wait, go buy the book. Buy it for me. Best place to get it. SNStorytelling.com. Uh, they look for the Pericles Conspiracy. And you can also buy it from Amazon, every other place. You know how that works, too. So we're not going to go into that. Uh, but hey, come by the website, sign up for the mailing list, and sign up to be a uh, supporting patron through my membership uh, set up on my site. Just like Patreon, except uh, I control it. And so I can't deplatform myself or anyone else because the platform is just me that I own so yeah it's nice um, but same deal a couple bucks a month on up to as much as you want and I got all kinds of tiered rewards and stuff so hey go there if you want to do it uh, microkingswood.com um, just as a reminder the uh, book funnel giveaway of Glimmer Vale is still going on until it's let's see it's Wednesday the 29th now it goes through the 31st so you got two more days that you can get Glimmer Veil for free. Um, and then I'm going to be doing some other book funnel giveaways if you really want to do that. It's a free book, but you have to join my web mailing list to get it. So that's how that works. So go check that out. I'll put the link in the description. Um, aside from that, uh, just you know, share with all your friends what we're doing here. Subscribe, leave comments, drop me a line through the website. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. And uh, come back next week. We'll uh, continue on with our next chapter or two then. And uh, until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. 
you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mail list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>